All right, if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to read from verse 5 in chapter 1 all the way through verse 10 in chapter 2. So get comfortable. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, that great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us what we need to hear this morning? And I pray, Lord, that as you always do, working so dynamically in each person's heart, mind, spirit, soul, that you would stir in us the things that need to be stirred, that you would have us to reconsider, to repent of the things that are needed to be dealt with in our lives. And as we look at Nehemiah's prayer this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal these things to us, that it's more than just accumulation of information, and that it's more than just like a conviction here that we leave and nothing changes, but we do ask for actual change, actual transformation to happen within each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So last week we did one verse, so trying to place a little bit of catch up right now, and we're going through a bigger chunk. So welcome to our study of Nehemiah. This is our third study in our book here, and we study the book of the Bible with the expectation that God is going to speak to us, with the expectation that his word is living, that the Bible is living, and that he communicates to us through it. And with where our church is in this season of growth for us, in this season of development, this book of the Bible comes at a very strategic point in our development. As some of you know, we'll be adding a second service next month to just support the growth of the church, and that'll be April 19th. The two service times will be 9 o'clock and 10.45 a.m., so for those of you that want to go a little bit earlier, you're half hour happier, and then the other ones at 10.45, many will be much happier because you get to sleep in. And so that'll be 10.45. And so right here in our ministry, God has been just so faithful to our church over the years, and we're just really humbled and honored that God would continue to bless us with his grace as we move into the future. Now, why is Nehemiah such an appropriate book for us at this point of our church development? Well, Nehemiah puts in place some really crucial building blocks for us individually as well as the church community to grow in God's way. We so need your prayers. Your prayers are so much coveted and needed for our church. So please, please pray for us. Please pray for our church as we take this journey together. And last week, just a little quick recap, we looked at verse 4 and Nehemiah's reaction and then his prayerful response to the news that his brother gave to him about Jerusalem. And just take a quick peek back to verse 4 here. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, obviously, Nehemiah wasn't weeping and mourning for days about the walls and gates being broken down. That's not why he was crying and mourning and weeping, because these walls were broken down for a really long time. They've been broken down. This is not something that just happened. So why did he weep? Why did he mourn? It's because of what these broken walls and these broken gates represented. A broken people who had not experienced the glory of God in a long time just individually or as a community. They haven't had that experience in a really long time. And while many have grown calloused and desensitized to this absence of God, Nehemiah didn't. And he felt that. He felt that and it stirred this emotional reaction that caused him to weep and to mourn. And then we looked at his response, which was a spiritual one, not a physical one, which many of us are just kind of tempted to do when we see a problem, right? We want to just go in there and fix it. But he stops and he pauses and he continues to fast and pray for several months. And this is something we needed to pause at last week, because if we look at Nehemiah's work as anything else but the hand of God at work, the way we look at this book, the way that we interpret this book is going to be off. He invested 90 to 120 days, three to four months, into praying and fasting, a spiritual work. And if you look at how long it took him to build the wall, it was just 52 days, the physical work. So what we'll do this morning is look at the prayer that Nehemiah prayed here in chapter 1, and then we'll just cover the first half of chapter 2 this morning. So right here, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, is Nehemiah's prayer, and it's a beautiful, wonderful prayer. For anyone who is wondering, how do I pray? This is a really good model 
to practice. Now, some of you may struggle with what to pray about or how to pray, and I hope to share with you some things about this prayer that will be of help to you. Now, something that my dad taught me when he taught me how to pray as a child, he told me that I have to include these four elements into my prayers, and he said, you need to worship, you need to repent, you need to appreciate, and then you do the petitions last. But you do these God things first, and then you do that stuff last, right? And so I came up with this acronym, RAP, right? W-R-A-P. You wrap your prayer this, and you deliver it to God. So that's a, and so those are the elements. Now, I came up with the acronym myself because my dad spoke Chinese to me, so he didn't tell me, like, W-R. Like, so anyway, it's just I came up with myself. So worship, worship, the W. This entails praise. This entails reverence. Adoration of God, to glorify and to exalt God for who He is, to share with God our love for Him, to express to God how much we treasure our relationship with Him, to acknowledge Him as majestic, to glorify Him, to glorify His character. And here it is in verse 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. Nehemiah worships the Lord. He acknowledges the Lord as God of heaven. He exalts the Lord as great and awesome, recognizing his character and that God keeps his covenant, keeps steadfast love, that God is a righteous and holy God as God loves those who love him and keep his commandments. Some people get God confused with just being a God of grace, and that's inaccurate. God is a God of grace and truth. He's not just a God of grace. He is righteous, he is holy, and he is gracious. But he is not just gracious. He is graciously just, but he is not just gracious. Now, please don't get this confused, because we are not free to sin. We have the freedom to sin, but you cannot choose to sin without thinking about the consequences and the aftermath of the sin because you will be held accountable. So you can choose to steal, but it comes with a price. It's not free. And you can choose to practice sexual immorality, fornicate, have sex before marriage, but it comes with a price. It is not free. And if you are practicing sin, you're in sin. You're sinning. There's no justification for the sin. Jesus justifies you as the sinner, but he doesn't justify your sin. It's not okay to continue living in sin. It's not okay. He is holy. He is righteous. And so sometimes as Christians, what we do is we cheapen his grace. And there's a wonderful book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. And in there, he writes about cheap grace and he writes about costly grace. And so I believe that too many Christians have cheapened the grace of God. Now Bonhoeffer defines cheap grace as this. As the teaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, it's baptism without church discipline, it's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and to follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
So as we lift our prayers to God, we lift them in worship, in worship of Him. And it's not in worship of me. It's God-centric. It's not me-centric. We just won't pray really well if it's not about God, right? Because if it's about you, you might as well just be talking to yourself and just face yourself in the mirror and just start saying things, which some people actually are doing when they're praying. They're really just talking to themselves. Have you found yourself doing that? I catch myself doing that sometimes myself. I'm praying, I'm like, I'm not really praying to God though. I'm just kind of talking to myself. And when the question is asked, did the Spirit lead you in such and such a way? It's really important to figure out if you're just talking to yourself or if you're talking to the Lord. And so this is what worship allows you to enter into is to make sure I'm talking to God. So my first thing as I enter prayer is I worship I am acknowledging in my head, I am talking to the Lord. I'm not talking to myself here. Now, how do you know whether it's the Spirit speaking to you or someone else? Well, it has to be consistent with the Word of God. And if it's not consistent with the Word of God, it's not the Spirit speaking to you. You're talking to yourself. You're hearing somebody else talking to you. So, for example, back to the sinning thing, if you're going to go steal something, it's not the Spirit. If you're having sex before you're married, it's not the Spirit. It's not love. I love her. I love him. It's not. It's sin. It's sin. And when we finally recognize that God is sovereign and we are not, we can effectively pray to God. Otherwise, why even bother? If I'm God of my own destiny and I dictate how I live, then why bother praying? You're your own God. So why bother? But when we understand the nature of God, the nature of humanity, when we understand God's revelation to us as our Redeemer and understand how hopeless and finite we are in ourselves, then we're driven to prayer. Our prayers are to be God-centric. Why? Because He's omnipotent, He's omnipresent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. There's no prayer that you lift up to God that's going to surprise Him. He knows what you're praying for and your needs before you even say them, before you even think them. He knows all the issues that we're lifting up to Him in prayer. He knows all of it. Even the parts that you forget. And we see but a small piece of the picture of what we're praying about when He sees the entirety for all time. And we just see this little snippet. So while we're focusing on our prayer on this little sliver of a situation, God sees everything. He sees it all. So who are we relying on when we pray? Is it God who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipresent? Or is it our own small perspective of what's going on in someone's life or in the world or in my own life? It really reveals who we trust, doesn't it, the way that we pray? Are we trusting in God or are we trusting in ourselves? And you can really tell if people trust in God by listening to how they pray. Listen to people's prayers. It reveals who they trust. A lot of it is revealed in how they approach God. Is it worshipful prayer? See, Nehemiah's prayer is one of worship. And then he goes into repentance, verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant and that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses." 
Now you notice within this repentance is confession. The confession of sins is necessary for repentance. Before any revival, people, community, needs to confess their sins before it leads into true repentance. Now when's the last time that you've confessed your sins to God? Are there some sins that you don't even know that are there? And this is the amazing thing about confessing sin. It starts helping you to reveal things that you didn't even know were there. It's amazing what the Lord reveals in prayer, in what He does in the study of His Word, in the confession of your own sins. I confess to you that right now, one of the sins that I'm dealing with is just figuring out my motives because they're not always pure. That I really have to dig a little deeper as to why are we really going to a second service? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And just kind of questioning different things within myself to see, am I being manipulative? Or is this like strategic? Are you making them synonyms? Like, what are you doing? And so there's just all these layers of who I am as a finite person before an infinite God. And it just takes really brutal honesty, complete vulnerability, full disclosure, this total transparency to get to the bottom of the ugliness of sin in one's life. And who do you have in your life that you can do this with, that you can kind of just confess things to and start digging some stuff up? James chapter 5, verse 16, James tells us to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I've been meeting with the same counselor for the past four years who knows me pretty well by now and can ask me some pretty good questions. And he knows every little dark part of me. And for me to just confess things to him and share things with him because I'm capable of any sin that is known to man. I used to think before, like, oh, you know, I'll struggle with this one, but not so much with this one. And I'm okay with here, but I would never struggle with that one. And then as time goes on and I'm thinking, yeah, we're all different and we may be more predisposed to a certain sin than another sin, but really I'm vulnerable to any sin. I am. And let's not just confess that we're sinful because we do that all the time too, right? When we pray like, oh God, sorry for my sins. That's so broad. Your sins. I confess that I am prideful. I have pride, which is helping me see that, yes, I am vulnerable to all sins because the pride was what didn't allow me to see that I'm vulnerable to all sins. That I was saying like, oh no, some things, no, I'm not going to deal with that. I have no struggles with that at all. Pornography doesn't do anything for me. It's not a struggle at all anywhere in my radar. But for me to say, like, never, that I'll never be vulnerable to it, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Of course I'm vulnerable. I'm a guy, right? So I'm vulnerable. What are the sins that you need to confess? Are you a gossiper? Do you lie? Do you cheat? Confess the actual specific detailed sin and don't skirt around the issue. Call sin, sin, and don't justify the sin. Just be honest about it, confess it, and move forward toward repentance. And then it comes to the third element, appreciation. Verses 8 through 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them... Though your outcasts are in the most utter parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Here's an appreciation of God's promises. 
And we see this as Nehemiah gives an account of the assurance that he has in God because God is true to his word. And within this appreciation is also where we include thanksgiving, that we give thanks to God. How much do we show appreciation to God in our prayers, expressing how thankful we are to God? Now, if any of you question the will of God in your life, let me tell you what the will of God is for you in your life. And you're thinking, like, you're going to tell me what the will of God is for me. Yes. I'm going to tell you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's the will of God for you. Right? So rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. That's the will of God for you individually and for us as a church family. If we do these three things as a church consistently, we are doing really, really well. If people come away from our fellowship here with these things, experiencing joy, prayer, thanksgiving, we've done really well. A joyful, prayerful, thankful church. These are just really great goals for us to shoot for. So we have worship, repentance, appreciation, and then petition. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Petition. Nehemiah asked God to hear him out in a really reverent way, but it's after worship, after repentance, after appreciation. And knowing God as intimately as he does, he asked God to give him success, to grant him mercy when he's in the presence of the king. He asked God to set things up with his boss, the king, because Nehemiah wasn't so sure if he could do anything with the king, but he knew that God sure could. And Nehemiah knew he needed God. He could not do it on his own. Something that I think the Western church is really strong at is that we can do things on our own. We're good at that. We're entrepreneurial. We're creative. We have some resources. This strength is also sometimes a weakness for us, though, because we depend so much on the strength. And what the strength does is it limits us to the ordinary because your money only goes so far. This many people only go so far. Your entrepreneurship, your creativity only goes so far. God is the God of miracles. God is the God of the extraordinary. And when we leave God out, we're missing the amazing. We're missing the wonderful. We're missing the miraculous. Worship, repentance, appreciation, petition, that's how you wrap prayer and you deliver that to God. Now, Nehemiah, he invests three to four months of praying and fasting to God before we get into chapter 2, verse 1, when King Artaxerxes notices something different about Nehemiah, that he wasn't himself. So chapter 2, verse 1, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now we know that this is three to four months because the month of Nisan is in the spring around April, and in Nehemiah 1.1, the month of Kislev is in the winter around December. So Nehemiah knew how to wait for the Lord. And this is just an incredible lesson for us to learn, waiting upon the Lord. There are so many biblical references about waiting on the Lord. I'm just going to share five of them, but the Bible is peppered with this. Psalm 27, verse 14, Wait for the Lord, 
Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 62.5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. Isaiah 40.31, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And the last one, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him to the soul who seeks him. And there are a ton of other verses in the Bible about waiting for God. The miraculous, the amazing, is based off of God's timing, not on ours and what we do. In the meantime, in this in-between time, we pray. We pray and we wait for God to lead. And that's what Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, did. Picking up in verse 1. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, why was Nehemiah afraid? Well, who was he working for, and what did he do? He worked for arguably the most powerful man on earth at the time, and he was his cupbearer, meaning he tasted all the food, he tasted everything the king would consume prior to the king consuming it. So, if he works for the most powerful man that can put you to death at any time for whatever reason, and you look kind of not yourself, are you planning on doing something to me? Did you do something to that drink, or did you allow somebody to do something to that drink? What's going on here? Are you plotting something? And it's not like the king's like, oh, my valiant cupbearer, I'll replace you. There are thousands. If I feel threatened at all, you're gone. There's no reason that I need to keep you. So he can just be killed, and then new cupbearer comes in. Or if the king just doesn't like your attitude, he can have you killed. You're making me sad. Kill him. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Like... You're just like a total Eeyore and like, dude, off with this guy, man. This guy's bringing me down. Like, this would be kind of a cool thing. Thank God I'm not king. But, but then King Artaxerxes, he inquires about what's wrong with Nehemiah because he noticed that Nehemiah was sad. And so Nehemiah did a pretty good job for the past four months of just looking fine. I mean, think about this. He's been fasting and praying, and he doesn't look like gaunt or whatever. He's been looking okay for the past four months. But this particular day, this day, something's different. And the king's like, hmm. And it's all God's timing. This is all God. For God to arrange for a time for Nehemiah, all right, now you're going to look sad. Past four months, you're just going to fast and pray. You're going to look like everything's normal. But this day... This day, God changed the king's heart, made the king ready to see Nehemiah and his sadness. And you notice that Nehemiah, over the last four months, he doesn't try to scheme anything or manipulate the king at all. Even though he has the king's ear, he's right there. He could say things to the king like, oh, Jerusalem king. Like, well, what about Jerusalem? He doesn't do any of that stuff. He's just doing his job, doing his stuff. Even though he has access to the king, he doesn't manipulate the king at all. He waits for the Lord. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Very smart thing to do. Very smart thing to do. You trying to kill me? Let the king live forever. 
And so Nehemiah respected the king, and this was probably a saying that is normal, right? Like, hail the king, or whatever, like whatever people say before the king. This is probably just a common thing that is said. And this is something that we recently studied in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. To be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Another thing, the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It is biblical to be subject to our human institutions. And because Nehemiah was humble, respectful, he did good, he was given an opportunity to share with the king what was going on in his heart. Verse 3, Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So, I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah had already fasted and prayed for four months. And notice here that when King Artaxerxes asked him what he wanted, what does he go straight to doing? Prayer. You just prayed and fasted for four months, dude. When are you going to pray again? Yes. Yes. And so he has his priorities straight. And God gave Nehemiah wisdom and tact in talking to the king. He noticed that Nehemiah was honest with the king. You ever notice someone looking sad? And so you go up to them and you're like, hey, how are you doing? And what's the typical reply? Even though they look sad, fine, I'm okay, I'm fine. Nehemiah didn't say that. He's totally honest. Because he could have just said, I'm fine, I'm okay. And the king was like, all right, give me my food. And it's done. And he might have not asked the follow-up question, what are you requesting? You also notice how wise and tactful Nehemiah is and how he spoke to the king. You notice that he never mentioned Jerusalem. He never once said Jerusalem. He says things that are going to touch the king's heartstrings. He says things like, the place of his father's graves lies in ruin. In this culture, your father is very important. This is where your lineage, this is your legacy, this is where he's going to pass on his legacy to his child, and that child, the father-son relationship is very sacred. And so the king understood preserving the dignity of fathers. He understood the desire to protect people and to protect land. I think he doesn't mention Jerusalem because of this. Because Jerusalem resisted Persian rule. They did not want to be over, just like anybody else. Who wants that, right? Yes, take me over. Like, who, nobody wants this. So they resisted. So bringing up Jerusalem is not a helpful thing. Right? Because he'd be like, Jerusalem? Let it be that way. What do I care about Jerusalem? Nehemiah plays it smart. The graves of my father. Right? The graves of my father. This place is in ruin. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, see how smart this guy is, Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And so God gave him the plan. He gave him the words. He doesn't insist. He doesn't demand. Nehemiah continues to be humble and respectful to the king, his boss. And we can tell that Nehemiah did a good job based off of verses 5 and 6. Right, let's just jump to six. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, most scholars believe this is Queen Esther, but we'll talk about that when we get to Esther. 
How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, if Nehemiah wasn't valuable to the king, he would have been gone already, right? He would have been, get out of here. But the king and the queen were interested to know when he'll be back. You'll be gone, but when are you going to be back? We like you. Come back. And notice that the king was pleased to send Nehemiah. In those four months, God prepared the way for Nehemiah to head to Jerusalem to rebuild. Now notice what else God had revealed to Nehemiah. Keep in mind that he's a cupbearer. But God gives him this awesome plan. Verse 7, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through it until I come to Judah. Now, these letters that Nehemiah asked for would ensure a smooth passage, just like visas for each country that you need to enter and leave and things like that. Otherwise, he gets to this checkpoint, this place, and this guy that's at the checkpoint says, like, you don't have the right papers. Go back. You can't come through my place. I'm not going to let you. But with the king's letter to these governor, what are they going to say? Get the king's letters like, no, well, you're dead then. You're going to die. This is from the king. So he wasn't going to have any issues with travel. It's going to be smooth. And then verse 8, And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. I love this part about Nehemiah. Oh yeah, and me too. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. See, God revealed to Nehemiah the materials he needed. Was Nehemiah like an engineer or an architect? Like, how in the world would he know? How would he know what he needed? And he asked the king for a letter for the timber because when he gets to Asaph, it's not like Asaph's like, you need how much? No. You need to build a wall and your own house? Who are you? But no, he's like, letter from the king. Cut the forest down. Like, there's no problem. Like, it's done. Now notice that Nehemiah is just really thoughtful about this house. This house just gets me. Sorry, so my little tidbit. Have you met Christians that say, oh, we're just going to be fine if we just go on faith? We just have to have faith. Now, faith is awesome. Faith is really good. But it doesn't mean that you don't plan. Because where was he going to live if he went there? Failing to plan does not equate to being more spiritual. Nehemiah had plans. He had a plan as to what was going to happen moving forward. Verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. He didn't even ask for this. He didn't even ask for this. The king gave him more than he asked for. And I think it's just really brilliant that he gets a military escort. Through King Artaxerxes' head, I imagine that he's thinking, all right, I gave him the papers, and I gave him all this material resource. What if it all gets taken? Give him some army troops. Like, give it to him. And so Nehemiah is just like sitting happy here. Like, this is a good deal. Every province I go through, when I get to Asaph, it's like, no, you're not getting squat. You want a house? All this stuff from King Artaxerxes to let him through. Not only that, it's like this army is by him. So any bandit, anybody's like, look at this. There's a lot of resources. Shoot, the army's there. Next. 
you know, we're not even going to bother. And they're just going along. Now, did Nehemiah do any of this? Did he do any of this? Was any of this like his doing? You look back to verse 8. For the good hand of my God was upon me. He doesn't take credit for any of this. James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do you know where every good and perfect gift comes from? The good hand of God. The good hand of God. This doesn't mean that Nehemiah didn't plan or that he didn't do anything. He put a lot of effort into this, didn't he? And it's obvious that Nehemiah's four months of fasting and praying gave him this great insight as to what he needed and how he would go about rebuilding Jerusalem. This is us. We can go about doing our own work out of our own effort, out of our own resources. It's going to be ordinary. It's just going to be like any other philanthropic civic work that's around here. And they probably even do it better. We need the hand of God. And we need to commit to praying for God's direction to lead us. Because a bunch of us here, we're just a bunch of cupbearers. Because how many of us are executives of a nonprofit that know how it runs? Or how many of us are like development directors where we can raise millions of dollars? We're cupbearers. And yet God gave him a great vision as to what he needed, how much time it would take, who to bring, what route to take to Jerusalem, everything planned out. And he wasn't thinking, you know what? I'm just going to take it as it comes. I'm just going to go by faith. Um, King, can I go? Sure. All right, see ya. What in the world was he going to do when he got there? Oh, um, I forgot. There's no wood here. I'm in the desert. What was he going to do? And like he was even going to make it out of one province to another, he would have just been turned around. Go back to where you came from. You don't even have the proper paperwork. Or he would have got beaten up and killed and everything taken from him without that military escort. He's not thinking, I'm just going to go by faith and I'm just going to go. His four months of prayer and fasting was a very fruitful time with God. And God opened up the opportunity for Nehemiah to share with King Artaxerxes his heart at just the right time. And then verse 10, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now we're going to look into these guys a little bit more in a future study. We don't have time for that now. I'll wrap up with this about these guys though. Anytime you do something worthwhile for the Lord, anytime, anything for the glory of God, you're going to face opposition. Every time. Anytime you walk in the light, you will be confronted with darkness. The thing is, is that God uses ordinary people to pull off the extraordinary because it's for His glory. It's His glory. And just know that you're going to face these obstructions, these obstacles when you're doing God's work every single time. Without fail, it happens. Now, how many of you doubt that God can use you to do incredible things for His glory? Because there may be some of you out there who think this. Like, not me. There's no possible way. Not me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Him 
who strengthens me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You can forgive that person who has wronged you so badly. You can do it through Jesus. You can love that person who is so unlovable in your life. You can share the gospel with that person who is so hostile towards it that whenever you bring it up, they just get angry at you. And you can help make this community a place that glorifies God even more than it already does. You can change somebody's life. For those of you that were at the annual celebration yesterday hearing Jen Davenport's story, do you know how she came to faith in Jesus? At the gym. Someone at the church was working out at the same gym she was working out at, and that's how she heard about Jesus. At the gym. You can change someone's life. And so she's come to faith. She went through a really depressing time, a really low point in her life. Came back to the church to where Sammy, who shared the gospel with her, encouraged her. So she came back to church. And so she was growing here and she was sitting in the back in the balcony there. I can still envision her. She's in the back corner all by herself. Doesn't want to be bothered by anyone. And we had an intern at the time named Josephine. And many of you guys know Josephine. Very sweet, very quiet, very just like saintly woman who started in the middle, but every week I noticed that she'd inch closer to Jen until she ended up sitting next to Jen. And she prays for Jen. And Jen is moved by Josephine and moved by these things. And then she ends up going into a home group. And then the home group comes around her and loves her and helps her to feel accepted and loved by God and loved by our community. And so she gets baptized. And she got married in this church. She's going to have a child and dedicate that child through this church. You can change someone's life no matter where you are, even on a treadmill. You can change their life. All of it because you can do things through Christ who strengthens you. And because the good hand of my God is upon me. The good hand of my God is upon me. You can do incredible things. Extraordinary things because the hand of God is upon you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your grace, Lord, in guiding us and moving us, that your hand is indeed upon us, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we approach you, that we realize that in our prayers, we need to include in them worship and repentance and appreciation. Before we get to this petition, oftentimes, Lord, we just jump to the petition. And sometimes we're good at the appreciation, not so good at the worship part. Not so good at dealing with our sins and confessing them to one another. Father, pray that you would posture our church in the direction of your heart and your will, that we may glorify you and that we may love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.